0: Good morning, let me add my own welcome to you this morning, uh, especially if you're new here, we are uh, grateful that you're here, and I want to reiterate, we've got gifts out there for you, you're going to grab those on your way out this morning, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, it's going to be back up uh, here to open God's word with you this morning, and if there is a point during the sor- sermon when you think, man, Andrew looks like he's got a newborn at home and he's not getting much sleep, uh, you're right, that is true, um, this is Olivia Joy, Uh, She was born Labor Day weekend. We haven't really slept for a solid three hours since then, but uh, she's obviously worth it all. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support, for all the food. I don't know, I said the first service, I don't know how people uh, have babies without a church family to support them. Uh, We were really thankful for all of you and thankful for your prayer. Uh, And in fact, before we open God's Word together this morning, let's um, pause and ask for uh, him to help us in that work. We need to pray and help ask for God's spirit to do the work of speaking uh, to us through his word for the next half hour or so. So let's pray together. Father, thanks that you have gathered us together, um, that this is your work, this is your church that you are building. Um, Thank you for one another and for your word that we can open it together and, and actually hear from you that that's true. And so I pray Um, that where I I say my own things, they'd fall away quickly and be forgotten, but where I do speak your word after you, God, I pray that you would teach, that you would convict, that you would comfort whatever uh, whatever you need to do this this morning, Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit, to shape us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. I pray you would do that. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Story Worth Living, that is the name of the uh, series that we are in the middle of right now. The past five weeks, we've been wrestling together with, with stories of our culture and how those collective stories influence our own individual stories and even how they intersect with um, the story of Scripture. Um, there's something good in each one of these cultural narratives. We started with YOLO, You Only Live Once. Um, last week was uh, the, the narrative, I Decide What's Right, uh, which assumes that morality and goodness are, is worth a pursuing there's something about it we are we already know to be true even culturally we know that we ought to be good and there's something good in each one of these narratives and yet uh, they are also incomplete but because we live here today in, in the here and now in this cultural context we tend to assume they're right or maybe we don't even realize we're being shaped by certain cultural narratives and we're not the only people who have done this we're not the f- the first culture in the world to have um, stories that we live by that animate us as people, God's people. Uh, as they left Egypt, entered Canaan, the promised land, dealt with the same thing, which is why in large part we have the first couple chapters of Genesis as a countercultural narrative uh, for God's people then. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in, in Genesis chapter 3, as you heard Tim read the first seven verses there. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 3. Um, and a reminder, if you have questions that come up throughout the sermon, uh, feel free to text them to the number that should be on the screen. Some of the pastors will work through those uh, tomorrow afternoon, post it on Facebook Live. If you have questions for us in particular, you can send those to S at christcommunitykc.org. Uh, no, no one got that. Okay, send them to Tim. I don't want your questions, okay? Uh, but basically, uh, yeah, go ahead and text them to that number, and we're going to jump into the cultural narrative for this morning, which is this, you do you. You know that phrase? Have you heard the phrase, you do you? Um, Some of us use this phrase like when someone tells us they're going to do something that they want to do uh, just because they want to do it. Uh, Like, I'm gonna eat a cookie for breakfast. Um, I'm going to bed at 7.30 p.m. and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, I wanna get a tattoo of SpongeBob SquarePants on my neck. Right? Whatever, you do you, right? That's the phrase. those of, those of us who use this phrase in the room, is that did I get it right? Uh, I don't use the phrase personally, I kind of I hate it, um, but that's just me, I'm going to do me, you do you. Ah, see? Yes, you're with me, good. So whether you say it or whether you hate it or uh, you need to Google it later, that's fine, the reality is this, all of us live this phrase, you do you. It's hardwired into us, it's baked in to who we are as humans, way before hashtags or the interwebs uh, existed, this cultural story has been shaping the way that human beings make decisions from the beginning. When faced with a moral choice, you take care of you, I'll take care of me, let's just agree we shouldn't hurt anybody. That's the way the cultural narrative goes. And of course, there's something about it that's, that's true, right? Individual freedom is good. Doing what you want to do isn't always wrong. It's not always inherently bad. And if we all did no harm, the world might be a better place. That's true. But is that enough? There's an article in the New York Times uh, entitled, How You Do You Perfectly Captures Our Narcissistic Culture. So there's, a, there's a lot even in that title um, that we could talk about. But here's what the author had to say. About this popular phrase. There's a lot more, but here's a little snippet. It said In a world where the selfie has become our dominant art form, which I I think is, is right, phrases like you do you provide a philosophical scaffolding for our ever evolving, ever more complicated narcissism. He continues Instead of serving the establishment, whether that's God or religion or social norms, you do you empowers the individual regardless of how shallow that individual is. And then he comes to the the inevitable question that I think exposes a real issue. He says this, what happens when the person in question is not just an ordinary plotter like that, uh, not just an average Jane or an average Joe, um, but a true villain? What if your you is not so good? What if your you is not so good? Can you really do you and do no harm? What really happens when you do you? So to answer that, we're going to look at the first time this story was lived out, an ancient story that begins in a garden, where we learn the nature of morality of of every temptation since then, as the serpent says to Eve, you do you. Yes, we are evaluating a 21st century cultural ideal by looking at a story with a talking snake that embodies evil. Stay with me. Because this story, in many ways, like few other scenes in in the Bible, it gets me. And it gets you. It gets us. It understands, it, it makes sense of the brokenness that we see in our communities, in our country, in our world, more broadly so let's start uh, at verse 1 in chapter 3. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, I'll actually stop right there. And This snake isn't just any snake, clearly. Um, he is, in fact, the embodiment of evil, the incarnation of evil. He is the evil one, the enemy, as, as we find as we continue to read the story of Scripture, he's the first theologian, uh, the first philosopher calling into question Eve's belief that God has, in fact, been good to her, as we'll, we'll see as we continue through the story. And God has, in fact, as we think back to Genesis 1 and 2, has, in fact, been good to Eve, to Adam. They have a beautiful home in the garden, abundant food. They've been given every tree, save one, is open to their enjoyment. And most of all, they have him. He has given them himself, relationship with their maker. They have everything that they could need there in the garden. But the serpent, he hates God. He is God's enemy. Uh, He hates God's image. And so he attacks those who bear it, those who look like God, Eve, Adam, you and me. And he uses the best trick in his bag, which is deceit. (laughs) He is the original liar. He's skilled at it. Eve is up against a dangerous, crafty foe in the serpent that we're introduced to in verse 1. And you do you as a cultural narrative, as a story that that could animate our lives, ignores this crucial reality. It fails to acknowledge that what we learned last week to be true, which is there is a God, a good God, who is a lawgiver <laughs> and we're better for it he decides what's right and it's good if last week proved that you should want a good god who gives a moral law this week proves that you should want to follow that law <laughs> but instead we have a cultural narrative that for the most part misses it it ignores the fight between good and evil because really your choices largely come down to whether you feel like it or not whether you want to or you don't want to. You do you, which is how my toddler lives, right? She can't fathom why I would ever say no to anything, like why she can't have a cookie for breakfast. She just can't, um, can't understand why I would say no. She, she want, I want to do that. I want that cookie. It should be mine. Now, as adults, we're a little more sophisticated. We sort of tag on, well, as long as you don't hurt anyone else, you do you. But in reality, there is a fight being waged around us constantly between good and evil, right and wrong. There's a reference point for our decisions, and it is not our own desires. Evil is seeking to destroy us, and we don't see it, frankly, in our comfort. We rarely feel it. But if it's true, you can't just do you. If There's really a battle being waged around us that we are a part of. Every decision matters because we're always being formed informing others, becoming more or like God. And Satan is constantly seeking to destroy the image of God that he despises. So let me ask you this question that's been good for me this, this week. Do you really believe that there's real evil in the world? If so, this narrative can't be your guide. You can't just do you. You do you ignores the fight between good and evil. Uh, Let's get back to the story, though. As we continue on, take a closer look at the conversation between Eve and the snake, how the serpent deceives Eve. Again, back to verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The conversation starts with a question, a question that seems innocent enough at first. Uh, it's the kind of question we encounter all the time. It sounds like it's a clarifying question, though with a hint of suspicion and doubt, the serpent says, did he really say that? It looks like a question, it sounds like a question, but actually it's really not a question at all. The serpent's not interested in learning or being corrected. He's not curious. It's not a fact-finding endeavor. His language is, is intended to plant doubt It's sly, calculated rhetoric intended to lead God's children away from the God who created them. To doubt that he actually cares for them. Look at verse 4. Then he just outright lies to them. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. The serpent boldly contradicts God's clear warning, lying to the humans by charging that the God who created them, the God who placed them in paradise, the God who has given them roles and responsibilities in his world, has invited them to do good work in it, the God who has given them a home, given them all that they could ever need, this God, he has lied to you. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. Listen, Adam, Eve, He's holding out on you guys. Would he do that if he really loved you? There's so much you're missing. Don't trust him. Everything they thought they knew is called into question. God's goodness, his love for them, what's best for them. The snake gets them to believe if just for a moment that God is actually all about him himself in a, in a self-absorbed way. He's not all loving. He doesn't care about them. And this is where sin always starts. It begins with temptation, and the serpent was relentless with Adam and Eve. Eve, look, you do you. Look after yourself. God certainly won't. He's holding out on you. He's keeping you from having it all. Don't you see? From being alive, he's keeping you from freedom. You can be free. And we love ourselves some some freedom, right? That's at the heart of this. Do you is tempting because it looks like freedom. But you do you promises a freedom that you'll never enjoy. Temptation, like this scene in the garden, is the classic over-promise and under-deliver. And actually, it's worse. You do you promises personal freedom, but it delivers bondage and oppression And death. Here's how James lays out the sequence in the New Testament. It's been happening this way ever since the garden, after all. James 1, 14 through 15 says this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown, when it comes to maturity, sin brings forth death. It's precisely what we see happening in the garden. Satan, the enemy has enticed them with the promise of freedom. One Old Testament scholar says it like this, the essence of the serpent's message is that God is limiting Eve, restricting her from full humanity. Today we hear this philosophy everywhere. Be liberated, be free, self-actualize, unleash your inner potential. When you hear this, have no doubt that what you hear is the hiss of the serpent. The temptation to become something apart from what you were created to be. And it's worth a reminder here that, again, these cultural narratives have something... There's something true about them, right? There is something about the fact that God's put us together in unique ways. We have to explore that and live into the ways that God's gifted us and wired us uniquely. You do use has something to say about that. And yet, where we miss it, where we go wrong is this temptation to become something apart from what you were created to be. And what were we created to be? In relationship with the lawgiver from last week. He is the creator, we are the created. And in some significant ways, I mean, the serpent's right. Eve's freedom is restricted. But what do you think? Was she freer in obedience or freer in rebellion? It can be popular to believe that, that boundaries restrict freedom, and actually that is true. That's at the heart behind you do you, but what if those boundaries are for are good? What if I don't really know what's best for me? What if I'm more like a toddler than I realize? We're like the train that curses the tracks, right? Stupid tracks, I'm not listening to you anymore. I decide which way I'm going to go. I'm going to do, I know what's right. Today, I decide. And we think we're free. What if the greatest freedom comes through obedience, is on the other side of obedience to the one who made us, who made both the train and the tracks? Besides, we're all submitting to someone the one who made us and loves us, or to his enemy, the snake. Back to the text, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. Here's the real reason you can't just do you and do no harm. See, with a bite, sin entered the world, and with it, far-reaching consequences. Since Adam and Eve, we're all tainted by the sinfulness of sin. Our desires are distorted. Our hearts are bent inward on ourselves. Our affections are for lesser things. In fact, that's an important definition of sin itself. Sin is not just doing bad things or making bad decisions or breaking the rules. Sin is wanting less pleasure than what God intended for you. Adam and Eve were made to flourish in the garden with all the pleasure they could ever want. And they chose less. They chose the here and now. They, they believed the liar and sin has been under-delivering ever since. Remember the question for the article earlier, what if your you is not so good? Ding, ding, ding. As the result of this rebellion, sin ruins everything. James had it right. Temptation, desire that leads to sin, that brings forth death. With a rebellious bite, death comes to all. Sin has consequences. And they are destructive to human life and, in fact, stretch into all of the created order. Just a quick survey of those in chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Adam and Eve are suddenly aware of their nakedness. They take a bite and immediately know, I'm naked in front of the other, and I, sh- and I should be ashamed of that in front of the other. It's the moment that shame enters the world, and in fact, as we read on eight through thirteen, that shame is extended into the relationship with God. So they, Adam and Eve, know they're naked and have to be covered in front of one another, and now they, they're hiding from God. He asks them, "Who, t- who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from?" Verse fourteen: the serpent is actually cursed, and it's worth noting this is this consequence for. Adam and Eve's rebellion, the consequence of sin comes on the serpent before anything falls on Adam and Eve. He is the first one to be cursed. He will pay for his deceit. He is the enemy. But we read on in in verse 16, now there's pain and childbearing. There's relational strife between men and women. Work becomes difficult, sweat and pain are mingled into the fulfillment and the satisfaction of our jobs. Right? This, this chapter gets us, understands, we, we can make sense of even our, our vocational life and struggle. And then verse 19, finally, death becomes unavoidable. You will return to dust. Everything breaks down from this point on. Nothing escapes decay, and death. The reality is you-do-you doesn't have room for consequences, at least not like these. The consequence of you-do-you might be regret, maybe. But in fact, those who live by you-do-you also tend to live by the motto of no regrets, right? I live the way I want, and I will not regret anything I do because I precisely live the way I want. It assumes me instead of we. It's a narrative that exists on the the assumption that I can act independently of others. But that's just not true, friends. Your decision will impact others. As long as I don't harm anyone else is precisely the lie that the serpent told them. You can do you, Eve, and it's not going to hurt anybody. Voltaire once said it like this, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. We're all snowflakes, my friends. We're all responsible. Take, for example, as kind of an easy example, uh, lust, or maybe even more concretely, the use of pornography to, to satisfy that desire. You do you says, listen, as long as you're not hurting anyone, you do you. No problem. I can't really say whether that's wrong or right. Um, If your spouse would be wrecked by it, just don't tell them or don't let them find out. But look, I can't tell you that's wrong. Believe it or not, that is the cultural narrative. Pornography is not right or wrong. It's just uh, you do you. But you don't use pornography in a vacuum, do you? (laughs) Your relationships will suffer. You're feeding an oppressive industry of trafficking. And by the way, you're killing yourself. Gossip is the same way. I probably shouldn't say anything, but you know, as long as you promise not to tell, it, it's okay. <laughs> Your greed is harmful. Your anger hurts other people. Your laziness is, is harmful to others. I hope it's clear that it is, it is not possible to live however you want to do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, and not hurt people. Your you is not so good. My me is not so good. Even the phrase, do no harm, or as long as I don't hurt anybody else, presupposes that we all know it's harmful, <laughs> that we all agree on that, right? Like we have omniscient knowledge of good and evil. No, there is, there is one who has that. And he has given us a law. This so is the world we live in where good and evil are in a fight. And the temptation to do you is everywhere. This is a we world and your actions will impact others. Sin has far-reaching consequences. Well, this is fun, Right? Diagnosis is rarely fun when it's serious and when the stakes are high and when we're all affected. Um, So let's let's take a step forward, talk about how to fight this. How do we hang on to the good that God has created in us? While fighting the, the temptation to follow in our parents' footsteps, how do we go back to the garden, as it were, before everything fell apart? I want to recommend three short prayers for us this week. In these moments of temptation, whether you're a Christian or not, if you want to be free, let's pray these things first. When you're you're being wooed by a, a promise of freedom, simply pray this. Father, show me where this road ends. Show me where this is going to take me. When I make this decision, if I decide to do this, Father, help me see the ripples, the consequences, the way I'm being formed, or the way that this decision might hurt others. Show me where my choices are taking me. You need this prayer, friends. Temptation is subtle. And this prayer will help you fight sin early. And and one thing that has helped me, too, Remember where sin has taken you in the past. Remember the emptiness of false freedom. Remember where sin underdelivers every time. Remember the, the hurt that your sin has caused others. Remember where the road takes you. Pray that prayer. Don't dwell there. God in his grace has taken care of our sin but allow God to use your past mistakes for for present and future obedience. Second, pray this, Father, remind me what I really want. Not what I think I want, not what I want right now in this moment of weakness or desperation or prayer. In fact, this is a prayer we need to pray before we are in the thick of it, before you are in the middle of temptation. God, remind me what I... What I really want, not just pleasure, but joy. Not just money or things. But God, remind me that I really, what I really want is, is a lasting security. Something I can bank on. I can put my hope in. God, remind me that I don't just want success or accomplishments. No, remind me that what my heart really wants is an identity that is anchored, that is un- immovable, that is secure in you. Remind me that you already promised those things to me, that I have all that I need in your Son. Remind me what I really want this list could go on and on. And listen, do you know the, the moments in your life when you need these prayers? I hope you do. I, I've, I can look back on my life and know I needed to pray this prayer then. There will be moments when you're tempted to do whatever you want and you you will believe the lie that it's not going to hurt anybody else, but it's just not true. Pray these prayers. And then finally, when we have blown it, let's just imagine you didn't pray these prayers and you did take the fruit. We all have a final prayer. Father, cover me with your love. Clothe me in your grace. (laughs) Imagine, just imagine being God in the garden. You've made humans. You've given them everything, more than everything. You've given them yourself. All that they need, they have, and they choose the snake. They choose themselves. Now they're hiding from you. They're, They're ashamed. They know it. Now, if we're honest, you've been there. Maybe you're you're there today. That's how you walked in the room. Exposed or ashamed, just like Adam and Eve, hiding from God or, or from those that you love. Look back at this story. How does God respond? Does he destroy them? Does he say, you know what, that's it, forget it. You and me, it's over. Does he say... Look, you're going to have to really work for this one now. You blew it big time, and you owe me. What does he do? No, he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't tell them that they better get to work. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Adam and Eve in their rebellion... In their own sin have rejected God. They're exposed and ashamed, and God covers their nakedness. In his tender mercy and grace, he makes a way to cover their, their sin, their shame, and he does the same for us. And in chapter 3, verse 15, we get the first promise of the gospel. We see this this redemptive story work its way out throughout scripture we see the first promise of it here where there's there's the offspring of the woman is going to do battle with the serpent and his yes his heel will be bruised but you will crush his head the offspring of the woman will have victory Listen, clothes can't cover our shame, neither can anything good that we do, any accomplishments that we may be able to point to, any attempts at our own personal freedom or redemption. It will never be enough. Only God can cover, cover us. The good news is, is he doesn't just do it with animal skins, but he does it himself. He comes to us and died so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. The consequence of our freedom is death, but Jesus, the one who is tempted and did not give in, who never sinned, he dies in our place, and even death could not hold him. He crushes the snake through his resurrection and promises to redeem all those who trust in him, to make us whole, to one day walk us back to the garden, to the new creation. He loves you too much to let you do you. Let him clothe you instead. For in obedience to him, covered by his love, that is true freedom. Let's pray. God, thanks that. Just as this story shows, even as we are are tempted, are led away by our own desire, and rebel against you in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, God, in all the various ways that we have followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve here, God, even, even while all of those things are true, while we were still sinners, your word says you came and died for us, that you left everything behind, that you came not to be served, but to serve, to give up your life as the payment for many. God, it, we're so thankful that that is the story that could animate us this morning, I pray that we would God remind us of these prayers to pray in the, in the face of temptation. God, may we be faithful, to be obedient, and be reminded that there is a there is a deeper joy. There is there is abundant life to be had in walking with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.